Hello and welcome. You are listening to A Deeper Network. I'm your host, brother, and I'm really excited to start this new podcasting adventure with you all. Every month, I will interview somebody from my musical network. It will range from well-known producers and DJs to the lesser-known underground artists out there that really deserve to be heard. The choice of my first podcast guest was pretty easy, actually. I decided to invite Shay Damier, a very dear friend of mine who's done so much for me. I called him up, and this is the result of our conversation. So let's just get right into it. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, I just hate the mention, but carry on. It's your show. What do you, what do you have? <laughs> Tell me something. There's something I'm, I'm really interested about is uh, your relationship with France. And you and I, we've had a, an amazing relationship, I think, now... 12 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, man, mm -hmm. time flies. Uh, but uh, I don't know if many people know that you actually lived in France uh, yeah. in, in the mid-90s. And can you uh, tell me about how that happened and why? You know, to be quite honest with you, man, even still today, as I discovering new areas and new people in France right now, uh, and why the question becomes why I spend so much time in France, Um, well, first of all, you, you have to understand this. From, coming from America and being uh, American black man, you know, the world was painted in such a chaotic perspective that most of us grew up without identity. And one of the things that I like to always point out to people when they begin to see, you know, the gang members, when they begin to see the murder and all these races like this, what they don't realize is that There was a blueprint set up for us to be either dead, in jail, or on drugs by age of 12. So when you have a blueprint set up like that for you as a human being, the future looks bleak. But but I was that was a 1% exception. So being the 1% exception, once I started to travel, I began to see, and I would read, read Marcus Garvey, read, read books uh, about people who had been to, to Jerusalem or to Mecca, Uh, you know, at different parts of the world and, you know, like how, uh, you know, the Josephine Baker story, uh, you know, the jazz, Mal Davis, and um, all of the jazz greats who were also dealing with racism here in this world, in this country here, that would go to places like France and be welcome. And so I could never understand that, actually. And then I was spending time uh, in my first early years traveling to Germany. Germ Germany, I think Germany was probably one of the first places for Germany and England were the first places I started to travel okay. um, outside of the U.S. And so when I started to go to England, I understood that there was, you know, other people of color there, which made me feel really kind of cool, um, you know, because I, I didn't understand how that worked and why I was the only black American on the plane for like 15 years. I still couldn't figure that one out. Um, But anyway, it made sense afterwards. So anyway, so I started going to Germany. I was going to parts of Germany I had never ever, still today, I've never been back. But just so many places in Germany. And I was just always, you know, just the fear of, of the Hitler was always in me. Skinheads were always a fear for me, mm. you know, traveling like this. Uh, and then I went to Paris. And when I went to Paris and I began to see the multi-ethnicity there, uh, it changed my whole life. And then I began to re be, be able to relate to the 
the Josephine Bakers and the uh, Nina Simone's and uh, uh, what, you know, year, the, what year was that? Uh, this was this was like 1993. So it was for a gig, right? Uh, yes, actually, actually, yeah, 19, 1992, actually. Uh, and was that at the Rex that you played? No, 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 that wasn't the first time. This, this, this little guy's, uh, um, his name was Samir, Sam, I think Samir, uh, this little Indian guy, actually, uh, French Indian guy, actually, who, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who booked a gig there for me, and, uh, I just had no clue. Anyway, never got paid. That was a whole. That was a whole other tragedy to it. But I got made, met some great friends as a result of it. And then Laurent Gagné invited me and Ron uh, nice. to it. By the way, he just he he uh, Laurent um, texted me the other day and just told me that he found that the recording from the Rex where me and Ron was playing it. He's going to try to digitize it. Yeah. Yeah, I said, man, that would be so great just to hear. I would like to know what, where my mind was at in that time. But anyway, to make a long story short, so when I first went to, to Paris in 92, um, I felt for some reason like I felt secure. It was like the only place in Europe that made me feel secure. Not to mention that I had this kind of French artist name, which I didn't know at the time, uh, that it was had a French enunciation. So I didn't know because imagine me visiting um, England, UK. The first one was was Shaz Damir <laughs> or Shaz Damir, uh, you know. So you had them saying that. But when when I went to France and it was in Shay Shay Damier, I was like, "Whoa, this is crazy!" So for <laughs> me, that 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 that's how it all started. Man. So and that was the relationship. When the French did they sound more like you had it in your mind, or did your friends in America call you? In a way that was closer to the French. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was, it was almost like to me, uh, the French actually validated. Yeah, Shay, you know, for me, uh, uh, to me, that was, you know, I, I was Chaz Demir in America. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was Chaz Demir in America in the, in the U.S. So, and when we were doing the Music Institute, I was just Chaz Demir. Yeah, because that's it's um, completely different. Demir, completely different. Damier, Demir is more like Afro-American sounding. Exactly. So, so that well, that's that changed the whole game for me. But then when I went there, I, I began to realize that it began to all make sense to me. That this character, imagine this: imagine someone writing a character for a movie or novel, and all of a sudden this character comes to life. Uh, that's that's what it was like for me because I, I wanted to be the guy behind the guy, but I didn't necessarily want to be the guy. Yeah, is it like you had a breakthrough moment or something? You were there I had and, a breakthrough moment. Yeah. I had a, I had a, a super breakthrough moment, and I was in such an awe moment that I I was just I was in awe. But go to show you how strange it is. Let me let me tell you how funny it is. So so mind you, so a year before, two years before that, I went I was went to New York for the first time. So so going to New York for the first time and being introduced into the Latin and Puerto Rican uh, family in in. And uh, in New York, it was really funny because I thought that was just another race of black people. It was so freaked out. And so I remember, so I remember saying, wow, oh, this world is so evil. They're breeding new people. <laughs> oh, man, I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant. I literally thought in my mind that, that New York was breeding new people of color. Uh, <laughs> so in, in Chicago, you didn't, they don't have a, a big Puerto Rican um, community? No, no, we have, we have, we have Mexican community. We ah, have yeah. a big, large Mexican, yeah. Mexicano uh, uh, community here, which is, which is qu quite different in looks as yeah. well. You know, so we had, so in New York, the Puerto Rican boys look like black boys, light skin. 
but they looked black. Mm. I wore the same kind of Timberlands and the jackets and and the, and the jeans and it was like, and I thought this is crazy. Uh, but that was that was the aspect of it. Anyway, let's move back to Paris. So back to back to Paris. Uh, by this time, I'm beginning to see that there's different people in the world because remember, being in a Black America and never only seeing nothing but the black and white side of the world, not knowing that the world was very colorful. Um, I had a whole different interpretation. I had a whole interpretation. So my eyes was completely opened. Uh, and then I saw, and what blew my mind was watching, actually watching someone on the plane who was darker than I, about maybe five times shade darker than I, but they were Indian. <laughs> so that blew my mind. I thought, oh, this guy is like the color black, black, black. I was, I'm brown. You know, he's like black, black, and he, but he's Indian. I said, what is going on here? I mean, this is really, this is how, this is how messed up most Americans, uh, black Americans were because we were, we were, we were descendants of slaves. And so the whole kind of education and knowledge was just kind of fed to us so falsely, you know, as it is still being fed to us today falsely. Once you come to the, the knowledge you realize, you begin to find yourself. And I think for me, out of all the places in Europe that I had ever been, I think for me, Paris, France was like, that was who I was. Do you remember the first place you moved to when you first moved to Paris? I can, I can remember, I can remember, I don't remember the address, but I remember it was above the bakery. <laughs> so I could stay second floor above the bakery. So every morning, like five o'clock in the morning, I just smelled the bakery and I knew that it was time to wake up. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, really, really crazy. But but yeah, these were my earlier days in in, in Paris. And um, who were your people uh, at the time? I mean, uh, who helped you make the transition and, and facilitated it? Because you always need like some some help on the ground. Well, I had, well, I, had I had two good friends actually in in Paris at the time, and it was uh, David Chong and my friend Bruce. Well, actually, what happened was a year before uh, before the wrecks, actually. It was like a. It wasn't even like a, a big party. It was it was just like a party that this guy promoted gave, and someone gave me a pill. Yeah, you told me that and, story and, before. Yeah, and so, someone gave me a pill, and then I remember. I remember. All you remember was playing the first record, <laughs> but it's so funny because the jewel was actually at playing with me at the party, and I think. I have to always go back and ask him about the story because I, I love it when Dejour was something. He said, you know, I, I was there. I was right there with you. I was playing on the same show. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Wasn't uh, Gregory there as well? Yeah, but no, but Gregory not on the same. I met Gregory during this period, but 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 Gregory... Because I remember him recalling another event which sounds like the same thing happened. Is that possible? You, you know what? You know what? <laughs> it, might, it, it might have been, man. You know what? I'm not going to lie. When I was younger, I was a mess. Uh, when I was younger, I was an explorer. Um, I just was trying everything. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a mission to my madness, you know. And anyway, so that's what happened. So me and David, uh, he became kind of like my angel, my guardian angel yeah. in Paris. So he was. A, so every time I go to Paris, I would actually stay with them. So by the time Laurent brought me and Ron to 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 uh, Paris, I had a whole different perspective of because this is the first major club I'm, I'm in in Paris. Uh, so I thought this is really crazy. You know, we were in a newspaper. It was just crazy. Uh, and then by the time we broke up, 
that was when the time I went to Paris. So 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 by the time we broke up, my mm. my friend David says, "Hey Shay, why don't you come 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 to Paris?" I'm like, "Dude, ah, come to Paris? Yeah yeah, just come. You you can stay with us. Just come to Paris." And so that's when I stayed, and that was '95. Amazing. Yeah yeah. So it was like right after me and Ron broke up, like like maybe like six months after me and Ron broke up. That's more so or less before you started working with Distant, right? No, actually, this didn't was the same you do time. closer before? Oh, it was the no, same time. No, this is the same right? time. This is the same time. Okay. This is the same time. And this is how all this became to be. Because actually, uh, within my first two months of there, I remember someone because uh, you know what, uh, Distant Records wanted to meet with you, and I thought, wow, uh, okay, no problem. And so they wanted to meet with me, and they wanted to do an album with me. Uh, and I thought, this is crazy, no problem. And that it just changed the whole game for me. Really changed the whole game for me. I heard recently that. Our uh, publisher, um, Alex, yes, who yes. I suppose was uh, the man at distance at the time, yeah, yeah, tells me yeah. that uh, you were supposed to do an album, and that album is still. I mean, it, not that it's going to come out on distance ever, but you never <laughs> delivered that album, did you? I never delivered it. I never delivered the album. I never delivered the album because there were so many complications. Actually, coming back to the states, uh, actually, when I wrote close, actually. Uh, I was real, real close. I was in Paris, and then I went to New York. And in New York, I went to see MK. I was seeing MK's place, and I was in New York. And then I decided to go to Body and Soul on the Sunday. When I was in Body and Soul on Sunday, I was on the dance floor, and I remember they were playing uh, the record Set Fire to Me. I remember immediately after the, the set, going back and writing Close. I was inspired at that moment. Amazing. Mark, Mark, yeah, Mark had to go out of town the next day. He was to go out of town the next day. So me and his wife, Latrice, are sitting uh, you know, in the apartment in the flat. And I'm like, okay, uh, I want to do it. I'm working with the NPC. You know, he's got the studio set up. Okay, we, we, we can set up to re just record demo vocals. And what happened was I was trying to scratch the idea out. So I ended up laying the idea down, but I never got a chance to... We recorded because I always thought that time was going to allow me to come back and re-record it. So we ended up using the demo. So, so the close record that came out was actually the demo. And it's so funny because it, it's like a live take of it. I was actually trying to record the melody and the idea down. So then I'm like, okay, let's say this. They say they come again. I said, record this. So we're, we're, just, we're just laying it down to get an idea, right? And so they ended up becoming the recording. That's amazing. Yeah. So there you have it. Yeah, it shows you how sometimes you just want to polish things over and over. Of course you want. Of course you want to polish it up, man. Of course. I mean, come on. I'm I'm, I'm writing it at this point. I'm not even like performing it. I'm writing it. Yeah. You know. But I think what was happening is that I think I was so I was getting over the whole uh, communication with me and Ron, and I think that because my passion and my my heart was into it, it gave it let me be okay to be okay by it. Yeah. You know. Because I thought it was almost like my moment to to come back to myself. Because that was really it, it. It was it was a rough it was a rough um it was a rough journey. It was a short lived mo moment with me and Rob, but it was it was uh, how it ended was was rough. It was rough. Well, you, I mean, that song is is the fruit of so much emotion, and the result of that is amazing. Because it's for me one of your best vocal song but it's, but, but it's also actually the rebirth of me getting my life back actually after me run yeah it's amazing it's an amazing story thanks yeah. for, for sharing that with me man no yeah man how do you know about that that's an, oh, a nice little nugget there 
Yeah, 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 man. There, there you have it. I know, man. It's feel like we, we, we're making, we're doing a TV show. Uh, but no, <laughs> but no, man. I, I wanted to just share with you, and I wanted to share with you the reason why people often ask me why I tend to work with so many Parisian people, and it's not that I work with so many Parisian people. It's just that for some reason that was where I was landed. Like you know, it's so funny. Like I, I came from Chicago to Detroit. Uh, Detroit next step was Paris. And it's so funny because because Paris, the French gave Detroit its name. So how funny is that? Yeah. I come from Chicago to Detroit, Detroit to Paris. Yeah. How, how, fun, how, how amazing is that? And, and, I, and I end up getting the French name in Chicago, but waking it up in Detroit and really begin to exercise it in Paris. Well, the French really love you. So I'm sure if you <laughs> wanted to get dual citizenship, we could arrange that. <laughs> No man, no man. I, I, I'm I'm very thankful, and, and of course, man, I'm thankful to, uh, of course, uh, bringing it back up to the time of actually meeting you. Actually, I often think about that with 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 when I'm talking to people. Period, because that was also such a crucial moment in my life. Actually, uh, not that I was going through anything wrong or anything bad at that time, but just to be able to have an artist who, to me, you appeared to be so dedicated at what you were doing. To me, it was almost like a wake up call, and it was a wake up call for me to remember why I got into the game hmm. to start with. So I'm, so I'm forever thankful for that moment, actually, with you, actually, because it, 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 was, it, was, it was, and not only was it an opportunity to, to realize that there were still people out there with passion, but it also made me realize that my assignment wasn't done yet. You know, so I, so I have to thank you, actually. You know, I'm glad you managed to, uh, to see that because... You probably caught me at a time where I reminded uh, you of uh, maybe yourself or, 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 or how passion is uh, translated, uh, you know, through words and music. And um, yeah, for me, I was hoping that, you know, others would see that and you were the one that really connected with it. So and obviously our futures are have have been tied in until now. So yeah, I'm really grateful for it. You know, man, that's always a sign to me when someone to me has been sent to me from God. And one of the, and one of the, and, and and the thing to me that I knew that you were having sent to me was when you to, when you said in your letter you said I don't care if you don't like it. <laughs> I I remember that so clear. And I thought, wow, here's a kid who pours out his heart to me in a letter. First of all, and then turn around and tell me somewhere in the letter that he don't even care if I like it or not, but he would like me to listen to it. <laughs> and I thought, man, I thought, wow, what a character. And that, to me, I, I knew that when I saw that, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you exactly how it worked. As soon as I read that, I, I laughed, and then I immediately called you. Yeah, I remember. That, that's how it happened. I immediately called you. Because I wanted to know the person who, who would be bold enough to tell me that they sent me something and then say, I don't even care if you like it or not. Well, you know <laughs> what? just listen to it. <laughs> you know, this was probably my last attempt at, uh, at reaching <laughs> anyone at that point because... It's been. It was. A, I was a bit, you know, um, disillusioned, I guess, and I didn't manage to find a uh, an echo to my uh, outburst of uh, of music and sending it out to people. And really, it was at this stage, you know, I I guess I wasn't even sure you were going to get back to me somehow. But so, but you you caught that uh, that hand that was uh, handed out to you, I guess. So thank you very much. You had much. a powerful story, man. You had such a powerful story to me, man, that I knew that you were someone. And I'm going to be quite honest with you, man. 
I, I don't know about for most people who's heard your stuff for the first time, but I remember for this one moment of when I was listening to your demo, I was completely there. I, I, I was like I was living there. I was living in that moment right there, and I thought, this is amazing. And it was almost like inspiration. It was almost like, where's this guy from? It was almost like you took me in a time warp, but yet you were somewhere new. I was really, really inspired, man. I was really, really inspired, you know, and enough to make me inspired enough to go after you. And so I'm, I'm so thankful, man, that um, that you were, you know, a part of the, the whole new crew, you know, that would spark off a whole new generation of people to communicate with and to, to, to help invest in. Well, thanks for investing in me and, and so many others. It seems like you've been dedicating your life to this, really. Um, I'd like to go back to the early days of KMS and being an ANR for, uh, for KMS back in the late 80s. You know, where does this passion for finding new artists comes from? I mean, you know, I'd really like to know how it started and why you're here doing what you do. Uh, to be honest with you, I think working in a record shop at such a young age, actually, and someone nourished me, actually. My old boss, Sylvia, she nourished me. She gave me an opportunity to learn music, to learn how to understand the record buying. And I think from that point on, I always had this kind of loyalty to want to do it to others, actually. I don't know if I've ever told you, actually, but, you know, I, I came up, I was a, a roadie, actually, a band roadie, actually. No, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a band roadie, uh, this band out of Chicago called Magique. And they were really hot in their moment. Cool in the Game produced a project on them. That's how I met James Brown. I was in the studio with Cool in the Game. Wow. Uh, they would play for, you know, all the, the big guys who came into Chicago in nightclubs that didn't have a backing band. It was really a good experience, actually, to be with these guys. Um, also, we were rehearsing at Screen and Rachel's Warehouse, which is so funny because I met her way before the house scene, actually. I met Screen and Rachel, like, in, like, 15 years old, 14 years old. And it's so funny because she was the owner. And I remember her walking around in this warehouse, like she owned the warehouse. And it was about 30 rooms in the warehouse. It was just like different rock bands. It was a rehearsal space, you know, right on Lake Street. And I didn't find it out till like 20 years later almost that when she started talking about track records and being co-owner of the catalog of track records, I know her. Wait, scream I can't, I know her. I, yeah, it's so crazy. Such a small world. Yeah, but that's why I was so, so, you know, having that kind of early kind of inspiration, I think being a roadie and just being, you know, traveling with these guys on the road, doing a lot of local stuff in Chicago. By the time I was asked from Kevin Saunderson to do AR for his label, TMS Records, it was, it just made sense. It just made, it, it wasn't even something that I was prepared for, I was trained for. It just simply made sense. So, and it's not even like I look for, for new people. It's just there's always someone new kid that shows up and I always think, okay, I'm supposed to be with them, you know? So that's how I see it. So were you already an artist when you started, like, signing other people uh, working at KMS? Yeah, I was. I had just done, uh, we have just done the first record, which I'm sometimes ashamed of, but, I, but I'm very thankful of because I remember just a matter of time on the Techno at One album. And actually, it was a big record in Detroit, which is amazing to me, actually. And so I had a lot of local fans there. It was crazy. But yeah, we just recorded a matter of time. And that's how it all kind of came to be. Because when I was looking at this guy named Ed, and he went to Kevin, see if he wanted to do the project. Kevin was just signed the deal to do Inner City. 
and he wanted to do the first Techno One album. And he says, I want to put, put this project on an album. Then I remember going into the studio with Juan Atkins, because Juan Atkins mixed the first one, Eddie Folks. So Eddie Folks was my engineer, and Juan Atkins was the mixer. So just kind of having exposure to these guys like early on in the game before anyone, actually, it was really amazing, actually. But I knew even then, like I was in the studio with them before I met Mark Kitchen. And by the time I met Mark Kitchen, Mark Kitchen is like something. It's so funny. Uh, Kai Alse found the tape uh, last night. He called me. And, you know, we had an opportunity to do uh, a remix on Lisa Stansfield, This is the Right Time, uh, me and Mark Kitchen. So we got a call from London saying, uh, do you want to remix the inner city? Do you love what you feel? We were under the group called Power 41. And so I said, yeah. So I remember listening to this record, Been Around the World, which was getting a lot of airplay on the radio in the States. And so when they called, they said, well, do you, we have this artist, would you cold cut? Would you want to do a, you and Mark want to do a Power 41 mix on it? I said, oh, sure, no problem. Man, I got the tape and it was, this is the right time with Lisa, with Lisa Stanfield vocals on. And I remember crying, literally crying because I loved her voice so much. I remember crying in such excitement. Anyway, they didn't end up using the mix. <laughs> so that there you have it. So to this day, these tracks are, are still unreleased, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kai's got the masters. No, no, Kai has a couple of other passes that me and Mark had did. Okay. But I, I would love I would love to find somebody with the with the with the mix that we did, you know. But what, what we've done is we've done our mix and I've done a couple of passes. So Kai got a couple of passes off of uh on on cassette, I think. Ooh. From from the from the original from the multi track. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy, man. It was really, really crazy. That would be amazing if it if it could see the light of day. Yeah, 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 man. That would be crazy. That, that would be, be great ammunition there. Yeah. <laughs> But I tell you, man, we, there, there was a wonderful days, man. There was so much wonderful days and being innocent, not knowing nothing. How old were you at the time when you joined KMS? I was like 20. Okay, and how long had you been in Detroit? I had been in Detroit like uh, almost two years. Okay, and had you already started the Music Institute? Yeah, we yeah. already started the Music Institute, yeah. So I went from the Institute to KMS. Okay, so I guess that there were a lot of people who came with demos that you knew from the Music Institute somehow, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, there was... Oh, my God. I felt like the mayor of, of Detroit. Um, yeah, there was... Uh, wow, my God. There was everyone from Carl Craig to uh, to Jeff Mills to... I mean, everybody... I, honestly, I, I would be like... The, I was sitting at the desk, actually. I would be like the one like meeting with these guys like like weekly. I mean, like they were always in my office, always, always like weekly. It was so crazy. Yeah, I remember all of that, man. You know, but I didn't end up, you know necessarily picking up any talent i remember east move uh from from chicago yeah. coming to um kms with some demos and i liked the demos but cabinet liked the demos then we didn't accept the demos and then it was just pretty much focusing on in-house like pretty much me and mark me and mark was the production team on the power 41 so that was pretty much kind of like the you know outside of cabin uh that was kind of like the in-house production you know team and martin bonds which was another guy that worked for us. He was our engineer. But that was it, man. But as we relate to your questions of asking about the, the whole A&R and the developing of other artists, man, I think I've always just had this passion to want to invest in other people, period. You know, same thing with Ron. It was really crazy. Same, same thing with Ron Twin. It was no different. We met on a Wednesday. Uh, I think I invited him to a Detroit on a Friday. I think we were in New York. The next that Saturday, it went so fast, man. It went so fast. It went from 
me meeting him in Chicago for a few days, me inviting him to Detroit, taking him to New York from Detroit, coming back to Detroit, writing, do you want to be my friend and choice? And then like staying there for about two weeks, uh, coming back to Chicago. Hold up. Uh, when you write the choice, uh, how long had you known Ron for? We hadn't known each other, like not even like three weeks. Really? Yeah. That's mad. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy, really, really crazy. That's crazy because you know somehow the choice really like captures the sound of Shane and Trent, you know. And it's crazy that you know in just three weeks you pretty much laid out the sound, the blueprint of what was to come in the next few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy, right? Yeah. But but I, but I also think it was us going to New York. I think I think me taking Ron to New York, I think was probably like one of the. And it's so funny because picture this. Me, Ron Trent, and Kai Alse driving from Detroit to New York. We caught the train from Chicago to Detroit. Kai met us at the train station, picked us up. We took, we took us to the studio, and we were then going to New York this night. And we stayed in New York for a few days at a friend of mine's house, and we went to the sound factory. And yeah. that changed the whole game. That changed, mm. changed the whole game for sure. And then we've been there like other times before. So you imagine by the time we went there the first time, we came back and then we went back and then he and then he was playing like one of one of my tracks, I think, like the Chuck with me and Ralph Lawson's track. Uh I think Thank You. Uh and that was like mind blowing. It was like we were so hooked. We were so hooked. We were so hooked, man. We were so hooked. It's actually actually exciting just to talk about the moment. Yeah, but then were the early days, man, for sure. So it's such an amazing feeling when, you know, you hear your track played by somebody you respect in, in such an environment. Uh, it was better than winning a Grammy Award, <laughs> for sure. I mean, that was really amazing for me, you know. But it was also pretty good. It was the same way for Can You Feel It, though. Can You Feel It was amazing as well. But you know what was funny about all of this, man, is that, you know, it was such a journey. I moved to, to New York in 91. The same time Can You Feel It came out, uh, I moved there the same time. And then Never New Love came behind it. And then O 049 came behind that. So after O 049, I went straight into Meaty Ron. So that was the whole journey. The whole journey was Can You Feel It with, 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 with Mark, Never New Love, meeting Ron, going through the whole prescription stage. And that was that was a journey. Did you live with Ron in Detroit? Yeah, we had an apartment. We took, a, we took on a loft. Yeah, we took a loft for the apartment together. Okay, let me step back a second. What year was it when you moved to Detroit? Uh, 87. Okay. So is it you that signed the record of Derek Carter on KMS? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I, I signed Derek, Derek Carter and I signed Mark Kitchen. But did you know Derek at the time already? No, I didn't know Derek at okay. all. We, we, came, we became good friends right after that. No yeah. idea. I, I, he was with the group Symbols and Instruments. So we, yes. we just, we, I just met him. That's a beautiful record, man. Yeah, yeah. It was... It was uh, I, really, man, these were really some amazing times, man. It was really amazing times. Really, it were. I mean, I met new friends. It was it was just such as a whole journey because everybody was inspired at that time. It was like everybody was just contributing, just being inspirational, you know? Kind of missed some days, actually. Do you know this English producer named Mark Archer? Yeah. He used to go under the name Nexus 21. Yeah. And also in the UK, he used to have a pretty big duo called Alternate, which was massive during the whole 
rave hardcore era and i remember he posted some pictures from his trip to detroit and you're in those pictures actually well i was the one who actually got the vocalist donna black for the still life keep moving on for them she was a girlfriend of mine and i was the one who actually pulled her in to get her to do vocals for her okay i heard that she was the mother of jay daniel no that's naomi daniels naomi daniels yeah, okay naomi, now naomi i'm getting daniels. all my wired crop because i know you work with her too right well the naomi daniels i've done can you feel the fire That's a whole other story. I, I, I'm, but I'm in London quickly, and, and this kid comes up to me. He's playing uh, at, I think, Fabric. And we're sitting at the hotel, same hotel. And I forget. I don't know if I was playing Fabric. I think I was playing another place. And he says, okay, you're Shay. He said, you know my mother. I said, do I? Yes, you know my mother. I, said, I don't know your mother. <laughs> yes, you know my mother. They owe me Daniel. I bet, you, I, I bet you thought for a second, well, I know, is right? this my son? Wait. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine? Like, oh, do I have a son? Wait, wait. But was, because he was so young, he looked so young. I was like, what the? He said, no, no. My mother is Naomi. I said, okay. And instantly, can you throw the fire? Came to my mind. I was like, okay. Yeah, man. We were so we were so influenced by what was happening also over in the UK as well. We had a direct shipment of records coming from UK every week. So we have a box of records, like imagine like anywhere from, from 25 to 30 records a week coming from the record shop in London. So we just had a whole different perspective on music. Was there any artist that stood out out of all these imports, you know, that you were listening to and receiving? I love most of them, especially the ones that were major independent. Cool Tempo, Cool Tempo has some amazing stuff that came out. Joy Negro also was amazing coming out of, coming out of there. So these were people who actually were looking at, I thought it was really amazing. You know, also at the same time, the Italian kids were also coming with Irma Records. So we were getting a lot of that stuff also as well. I think the difference is, I think a lot of the kids in the UK were kind of stuck into the, the, the moving of the trends. So we were getting a lot of the, the trendy movement. You know, like, like one couple of months, it's like, you know, garage. You know, a couple of months, like techno. You know, so it was different, different kinds. But I mean, apart from Alternate, who was trying to be consistent with what they were doing, Um, I really don't remember anyone. Uh, uh, what was the other kid that done? Uh, not alternate. Uh, uh, what's the guy's? Um, ah, uh, it was a really big record. Uh, is it uh, Gerald Simpson? What's his name? Uh, a guy called Gerald. A guy called Gerald was also big for us because it was big for us yeah. actually in the Music Institute. So, so Acid was really big for us, and a Voodoo Ray was big for us. So these were really two big records that were in the Institute. So what we were getting, we were getting a lot of, they, but I also think because London was also the central headquarters for, for Europe as well. So I think we were getting kind of like everything, the melting pot. I think we were getting everything that was coming from every place. I mean, Kai will tell you, I mean, every time we get, we had a DJ booth up in KMS, up in up in the room, a DJ room, a DJ booth. And we were just listening to records. I'm listening to all these new records. A lot of them were disposable now that I look back on the day, but, you know, but there was some, I'm sure, that still the test of time. Yeah. Tell me something, Shay. Um, I think there's something that quite a lot of people would like to know, especially producers who have high hopes to get their music signed on a label that they really love. With your experience running labels, and what's the criteria that you're looking for that you know is going to grab your attention and going to make you want to listen to more of that person's music? What is it? I think the diff the, that 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 when it sounds different, uh, when it When I can hear the passion in it, when I can hear the aggression in it, when I can hear the quality in it for me. And I don't think that, that has ever changed with me. 
if it sounds like what everybody else is doing, it's not impressive to me. If it sounds like something that's that's in its own world, I really like this kind of stuff. And so I'm working with a kid out of Germany right now who I love his 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 motivation. I love his passion. He has to learn sound quality, you know, so he's so he can pull a record out every day if he wanted to. I keep sending him back to the drawing board because I want him to understand that it's not how many records you can produce, but it's producing. I'd rather have three good ones than 20 okay ones. And so I think sometimes newer producers think because they're kicking them out, they're all great. And that's not necessarily so. You know, and then some were doing really great jobs from the, from the start. Some could probably kick out 15 of them that's great at the start. But for, for most of them, I think they're still learning. And so they're very hungry and they're very motivated. Um, but I think that they have to also slow their pace and start really listening to even the stuff they play and listen to, like I asked my, my artists uh, that I deal with, I said, first of all, who do you see playing this? What time of the night do you hear this? Uh, and if you can't tell me them two things, then we, we have a problem. So you need to know, can, is, it, is, it a, is it the beginning of the night, middle of the night, peak time of the night, or the closing of the night, or the after set? Now you have four options. <laughs> If you can't see your music in any one of these slots, okay, then think about it, you know, because that's just how the system is set up, whether it's chill music or whether it's dance music. The second thing also, too, is that who do you see playing this? Who do you see playing it? You know, so I think there's some theory that comes along with actually being able to be creative as well. But I think that a lot of artists have to realize that just because you have the resources to kick them out don't mean that every track you kick out is going to be great. Yeah, I think we have more stuff that's okay than we should have out there. You know, I think had the producer spent a little bit more time, he could have had something really amazing. Okay, so if I understand correctly, that producer in Germany, he hasn't released anything at the moment, right? Oh, uh, yeah, he released one thing on Spotify, uh, but again. Okay, yeah, but is it just the one thing? Yeah. Okay, so you're basically telling us that you're working with somebody that doesn't really have much music out at the moment. Right. But you're able to hear potential and work with him, right? Yeah, yes. So it's not about being established and having the perfect music from the start, yet you have a way of interacting with somebody already and even perhaps preparing him for the next step. Yeah, well, that's what you do. It's almost like you, you, keep, you keep sending them back to the drawing board because you know that there's greatness in them. But you you want them to find it. You don't, you know, it's almost like I can't give you the answer. Although I see it clearly, you know, what you could do. So I'll direct you. But I really want you to find it for yourself. Because when you find it for yourself, that's your identity. That's your DNA. That's what makes you special. Is when you find that. And then hopefully you hold on to it and you learn that that's a part of your ingredient. I agree, man. I, I like that because I also get sent, you know, a lot of music. I always try to give as much feedback as I can when time allows. But what I really enjoy is obviously for the feedback to be constructive, especially if I hear potential and I hear that it could be better. You know, I I don't think there's much interest in being specifically, uh, you know, analyzing a track and this is good or that's bad or it's not about that. But if I can hear that it could be better, it it feels like more work could take you to the next level. That's where it's interesting to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And so, I, I mean, I take the same principles. And then also, too, you know, a lot of labels actually have a format of what their sound is kind of what they want their sound to be. Mm-hmm. But then I took my lessons from major labels, which means that I could do it from any genre and be okay by releasing it. So I don't always have to have one kind of style. I can I can use any kind of style and be okay with it. 
and you have a lot of labels who are kind of kind of locked in their style. I just think that it has to be good. I think people who like good music will like good music, period. That's just my opinion. Yes. Um, I think I've read somewhere that I'm pretty sure that your first international gig was in the UK, right? Yep. I'm not sure where it was exactly, but I'm pretty sure that Back to Basics and Leeds, yep. their first international artist was you yep. uh, back in 1991. Yep. Can you tell me more about your relationship with Leeds and Ralph Lawson, the, for those who are listening, the owner of 2020 Vision and the oldest uh, resident of Back to Basics? You know, it's really, really special actually meeting Ralph. Ralph was amazing person. He's still an amazing man. Ralph invited me. And I think I was only going to be there for like maybe three days, three or four days. I remember coming here the first time. I met him and he was here, him and his girlfriend. So I came, him and his girlfriend came and picked me up. And her name was Joss, J-O-S-S, which is why we got the dedication of Joss off of my classic EP. So then um, she was in a car accident. So, so I think like the next year or maybe the following, the same end of the year, I think Ralph invited me back up. And only this time she had died and she was in a car accident. Mm. And then we went in the studio to create Chuckles. Thank you. And so I think I was also, I think I was playing at Back to Basics both times, I think. And so that's how our relationship began. And it was just the, the farmhouse. We call it the farmhouse. It was a really amazing place. It was a little house like in like nowhere. Everybody would come there. You know, it's a really amazing place. The track that you're mentioning, uh, Dedication to Joss, is one of my favorite tracks, actually. If I recall correctly, it was released on Serious Grooves on the classic EP. Uh -huh. Such a sad story, you know. Um, you know, it must have been quite challenging to, you know, write music and translate those kind of emotions, I guess, right? Uh, here's the thing: uh, rap knew nothing about it. I was so I was sad at the moment for him losing his girlfriend that I wanted to be a contributor in the loss of his girlfriend. So I said, you know what? I'm going to name this a dedication to Joss. So, so I named it kind of like as a, I think as a surprise to him, but also as a respect to him actually, and and hopefully through the pain and suffering of his girlfriend. So I don't know. I, I've always been that way with people, man. I mean, I think I think God for giving me a heart for other people, but I've always been like that with other people, man. Did uh, Ralph come to Detroit at the time? Did you did you build bridges like say air bridges between your friends in Europe and the U.S. Was that already happening or? Rob didn't come to Detroit while I was there. I went to him actually. You know, it was amazing being kind of like the spoiled kid. You know, who gets the luxury to go to the U.K. to hang out with him. I mean, even up to Chuggles, I remember dance, which was probably one of the most amazingest times in my life. Which is probably why I remember dance is so important to me. At uh, this time, me, Ron, and Sundiata was on tour, actually. And me and Ron was having some disagreements with each other at the time. And this is really funny because it wasn't that far before we were be we were beginning to split up at this point. It was mm. like a short-lived short, short -lived marriage, actually, in a sense. And I remember going into me and Ralph and going to his place after the gig and writing uh, I Remember Dance. And I remember Ron coming in. I remember just it just bringing in my head the whole time, but I, it was just like, so much passion to not, you know, be caught up into arguing with someone that I wanted to really, really focus in another energy area. But yeah, so that's what happened. And so, but we made up eventually, obviously, because we ended up putting it out on prescription. So there you have it. <laughs> I can tell you this much, man, to, to, to anyone who's listening. I, I think if someone asked me if there's something I regret along the way, I would probably regret 
being more aware of, of maybe things, maybe in my own life for sure. But it was an amazing journey. It was an amazing journey. Amazing journey. Absolutely amazing journey. And I'm not using the word amazing like cliche amazing. I'm using amazing as in I felt like a golden child, a complete golden child for sure. You know, I still had issues. I still had demons fighting me, but I felt like a golden child. Why do you think you've been able to achieve so much and, you know, live this life and, you know, travel the world and, and be successful somehow? What would you put it down to? Well, to me, I don't think I achieved a lot, actually. <laughs> That's the funny part. I don't. I mean, when I look at people like Glenn Underground or Kenny Dixon I look, or Alton Miller, I look at these guys who are also in classrooms with, with me. I think that they've done 10 times as much as I've done. But I just think the difference is the way I was saturated was a bit different. You know, uh, I, I kind of strategically put myself in different dynamics. Uh, but I, I used to sit back and, and admire these guys and their works. And I'd say, wow, they're doing so much work and I, I don't have nothing under my belt. And, but then I realized that, you know, I had already contributed some classics to the game. And that would, that made me feel really proud. You know, man, from an, an outside perspective, I don't think it's got that much to do with the classics. You know, okay, yeah, you have classics and you can become big and you get invited and stuff like that. But like the long lasting kind of like success and relationship you get, I think it's way beyond just classics. Anybody can have a popular track. <laughs> to, be honest with you, to be honest with you, I think it's got to do with uh, what's inside of you. For me, that's the reason why you've had so much success. You know, it's, it's more than the music for me i think it's about the person and their actions you you might you might be right man you, you might be right uh and i don't know if i could find the words to to actually describe it uh to be quite honest with you but i think i've always tried to treat people right i've always tried to do right to the best of my 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 knowledge and i always try to be a giver and so i think that you know you won't find too many people on earth who've had an unpleasant experience with me and i'm not and i'm hyping myself at all but but it, that's just not how i was raised I, i was just raised to 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 be kind to other people and to treat people as you want to be treated yourself you know so for me it was just a whole different experience and i think people also welcomed that as well because it was kind of hard because you know us americans had this whole kind of um what do you call it uh when people are stereotyped against us first of all and then being black american you definitely had another stereotype against us and then being from chicago you had another stereotype being from us so i think when people would meet me i think that i wasn't the typical stereotype and so i think that that was also probably contributors to why you know people didn't mind inviting me back oh well man You're amazing. So that's why, you know, I think there obviously it's difficult to put into words. But you know what, man? You know, there aren't many people that really care about people in our scene. And I don't mean people of our scene. I just mean like people in general. Oh, You're such a people's person, you know. And if I've learned something from you, it's it's that, you know, it's to, to respect the people around. Thank you, brother. Thank you. That and, you know, how to you know, just treat people right. And obviously even our relationship, you know, it's not just about the music, you know, that's, you know, there was so much more about why we connected. But yeah, overall, I think that if you have an attitude of you reap what you sow, you know, things should, you right. know, come back to you. Well, you know, after this, after this pandemic, I hope I do. <laughs> 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 I, I, I hope, I hope that they, I put out enough, a month seat out there to where, 
I, I'll, I'll at least be able to either reinvent myself or come to another another avenue. Uh, that what that's uh, that's what I do hope, you know. Uh, but then you know, hey, you mean just keep doing it, you know? Who could who could ever know? Who could ever tell? But I do hope, man. Out of all of this that's happening in these days, um, you know, and me and my wife both agree uh, that we 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 don't want to be the same people coming out of this. You know, we we want to we want to have had this experience to uh, we want to be uh, different people when we walk through this out of this. You know, um, you know, we think that this has been a valuable lesson. Um, it should have been for everyone. And I think that it also should have been or should be kind of like a, a spiritual encounter for everyone as mm. well. You know, kind of like something that makes you examine yourself, re-examine yourself, you know, um, you know, ask yourself the questions, you know, what's really important to you? You know, what are your, what are, how firm is your belief system? Um, these things I find, I think are very, very important, um, you know, in these moments, because on the other hand, I think that fear, because fear is so easy to be fearful and to doubt, it's so easy to doubt, you know, and I think that for a lot of people, um, you know, that this is, this is what's happening, you know, that there's so much fear and so much doubt in people that it's making people think differently, you know, mm. but I don't want to think differently out of fear. I want to think differently out of knowing that, you know, I'll be taken care of, but also if I can just use the gifts and talents still that I have to go to the next level until I leave this earth. Um, because I think that, you know, it's an appointed time for everything. And even even our, you know, you and I know as well, even for careers and even for hype and either for, you know, you know what's amazing when it comes down to artists? What, what makes me smile sometimes, Sammy Man, is... You know, I've seen a lot over the years with Mixmag and with DJ magazines, uh, a lot of the music magazines. And, you know, I've seen maybe 1% of them people stand the test of time, which is, which to me is a kind of shame on their part because they, as publication, they were not producing, you know, longevity in people, in artists. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I think that uh, it just really makes you, makes you wonder, you know, like, Who's in this for keeps? Who's in this because it's really an artistry, you know? Someone I was looking up to actually recently also is is, is Roy Ayers. And Roy Ayers is amazing to me because I, I was, as a youth, I, I got a chance to listen to his earlier works. I was also a fan by his earlier works. But then I came close to him in Bali. He was doing a show. I came close to going to, to see the, oh, the show. But wow. I, did the, I did the after party. I did the after party. Uh, with uh, for him, I didn't get a chance to meet him. But I did the after party in Valley. But one of the things that as amazing to me is that he's been here for five decades. And if you see him perform now, yes, he may have gone from twenty thousand people to like 300, 500 people. But there are loyal people who really enjoy his artistry. And I think that to me, that that's hope. I think that gives a lot of artists hope. I think when you can see someone stand the test of time, when you see people like Stevie Wonder, you see you know people who who stand the test of time, it really gives you hope because there ain't that many people in the dance arena that gives you hope. Uh, not at all, I don't think. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make sense. You know? But I find that it's kind of difficult sometimes to compare 
the music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and dance music. Because back then, there were, you know, you had to play an instrument, you had to be a musician. I think it was more centered around the music and musicianship. Yeah, so yeah. there was already some musical talent and understanding of music theory. On the other hand, dance music kind of tore down those walls and suddenly you didn't really need to know all of that. I don't actually think you need all of that. You know, that's the beauty of dance music. You know, it's, it's more the, the feeling and how you express yourselves on, on the machines. I agree. I agree. I agree. It's about the passion. Yeah, It's exactly. about the passion. It doesn't matter how, how we evolve from bands to solo people. It's just that what, what I don't see much in this business, in the electronic business, let's, let's face it, you know, like the electronic business has been around 30 years. So 30 years plus. So in the 30 years of electronics being around, we've seen very few consistencies in terms of people to give you hope. Either they have changed the whole career, they changed the whole genre or whatever, and they move forward. But ain't there really many people holding the flag of saying, I come from this. Mm. And they come from electronic to pop or other parts of music culture. But very few actually still sometimes stand the test of time. So what do you think about we okay so someone asked me where do i think this is all going uh the music business and where it's all going and i simply can't answer we're gonna have to answer this question in a future episode with shay let's consider this part one guys as always there's just so much to discuss with my friend shay the professor the philosopher so thanks so much for tuning in This was my very first attempt at podcasting, so I really look forward to your feedback. Please try to subscribe to my SoundCloud or your favorite podcast provider if you want to hear more about it. And for those who are curious, there's actually a bonus episode where the people from my Patreon community have asked a question to Shay, and that is also another half an hour. So for anyone out there who's interested in listening to this bonus episode or wants to take part in asking questions to my future podcast guests, I invite you to check out patreon.com slash brother. There's also a bunch of perks like monthly download, access to behind the scenes and podcasts that are only available on Patreon and just a lot of cool stuff. So please check it out. And thank you so much for listening to this. See ya.